I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to the Debunking Economics Podcast with Professor Steve Keene. I'm Phil Dobby. And this week, well, the desire to curb migration. Is migration good or bad for an economy? And if it needs to be controlled, just how do you do that? And would the world be a better or worse place if we all just stayed where we are? Oh, and Merry Christmas as well. It's the Debunking Economics Podcast. Well, migration is causing, and I suggest it's always caused, unrest in countries. Part of it is good old-fashioned xenophobia, because they're not like us, are they? Foreigners. And part of it is economic. In each case, the arguments tend to be heated and disproportionate. To a large extent, it prompted Brexit, which, of course, is pulling British society apart and, uh, you know, doing uh, wonders for the democratic process, pulling that apart as well. But just as some countries want to cut migration, others say they need it. Canada, for example, wants to solve their ageing population problem and to fill the skills gap, and they reckon most of the new migrants they uh, they want will simply be filling vacant jobs. They're, they're looking for about a million or so migrants per year. Their net migration at the moment is about six people per thousand. In the UK, it's about two and a half. Uh, they want to get, um, they want more migrants. We want to get rid of migrants. So why the, why this big difference in attitudes, Steve? There's a, there's a range of issues behind it. I mean, my feeling about migration was uh, very strongly influenced by a wonderful article by a woman called Marie, I just remember her name, it's such a remarkable, beautiful name, Marie de la Provence. And she wrote an article in the 1973 foreign. Pardon? She sounds sa- foreign, yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I wouldn't trust that article. Yeah. There you go. She's a Macquarie <laughs> University academic back in S- Sydney, Australia. I, think, I don't know if she's around these days. But she analysed the attitudes of Australian migrants to new waves of migration right from, you know, pretty much the first wave of migration, which, of course, the locals didn't like. But they, that you could just shoot them back then, which they literally did. Mm. Um on landing, okay, Captain Cook, uh, I think at least at least four Aboriginals died on the day Abri- uh, Captain Cook. It's not uh, tolerated. It's not tolerated Bay. anymore. We hasten to add. Huh? It's not tolerated huh? anymore. We hasten to add for anybody who's yeah, not been to Australia. It happened. So mm. Either two or four were shot uh, by the boarding by, by Cook's boarding party. Um, but after you had a, you know, the the first wave of convicts in, and, and then the the, the um, convicts being freed and so on, and then you started getting an actual migration program to move to Australia. Uh, she found that the, the, the course, the resistance, the attitude of migration varied with the trade cycle. So when there's a boom going on, nobody complained about migrants because yeah. there were tons of people already working and, uh, you know, you, you actually knew you needed extra labour around. So it, was, it went the opposite way to the trade cycle. During booms, there was very little uh, upset. During slumps, there was a large amount of upset. And the trend was the group, have a guess which group was most resistant to new migration. Well, I would have thought it would be the, the, the low-skilled workers because they'd be the ones, particularly in deprived parts of the country, where, you know, migrants would it's often actually, go, to, would go to those it's areas. Actually, 
to some extent, but it's actually uh, the, the the previous wave of migrants were the greatest resistance to the next oh, yeah. wave of migrants. Yeah, yeah. But they were probably was, living in probably the low skilled workers in those deprived areas of the country where the new migrants were, get, were arriving at as well. Yeah, yeah. And so you you and 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 therefore the people who felt most threatened uh, were the ones in in the in the jobs that the Australian residents didn't particularly want. Yeah. Uh, they filled them, and then bang, another. There's a slump coming on, and they've got more migrants coming up. No thanks. So uh, the xenophobia. Uh, issue, which is still there. Like, we, we generally think in xenophobia in terms of a dominant race in a, I hate using the word race, but anyway, dominant race in a country or dominant you know, national characteristics. Uh, you know, I'll use race. Now, the dominant race <laughs> being being uh, anti the, 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 uh, the other, you know, other colour coming in, it tended to be uh, one bunch of, of migrants of a, you know, of a, of a you know, non-Europe, non, non-Anglo-Saxon ethnicity uh, being angry about the next wave of migrants of non-Anglo-Saxon ethnicity. Yeah. So, oh, I mean, and in Australia, it's been in waves, hasn't it? So, in in yeah. in, in Australia, it would, you know, I mean, there was some animosity towards ten pound poms, and then there was more animosity towards British migrants when some of those British migrants, uh, shock horror, turned out being black. Uh, and uh, my God, they're black and they're English. How did that happen? And then, um, and then, of course, you know, it, it all switched to uh, towards uh, resistance to Greeks and Southern Europeans. Yeah, uh, I, I experienced a lot of this when I was a kid at school because I, my my best mates were the the Greeks, the Lebanese. Um, not not I had plenty of Anglo mates as well, but I had lots of friends who were uh, Greek, Lebanese. Uh, Sri Lankan mm. and, uh, and 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 there was very distinct racism uh, from the other uh, Anglo's not all of them again because you know my friends weren't racist towards uh, my, my Italian and my Aussie mates there were also friends of my Italian Greek and and Lebanese mates and Sri Lankan um, but the, the there's definitely a, an undercore of, of racism but that was broken down by the school system, and I find this something which one reason I'm a critic of private schools and and the and the extent to which we've broken up the school system is that you now get different ethnic groups and different religious groups going to different schools. Or back mm. in, when mm. I was going to school, it was just a case of either the Catholic schools or the public schools. And public schools in Australia means publicly paid schools, not public as it meant in the UK. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and in my school, at least, uh, what what the teachers would do is they would sit together the leaders of particular factions inside the class, and ninety percent of the time they'd become mates, and you get a breakdown in this level of out, outright racism, and uh, and 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 that was a, a way of get, overcoming that initial reaction of of one nationality to another, which was marvelous. But as, as we've now had education fragment in the way that it's happened in the last 20 years, all these private education systems, and people can choose to go to a Muslim school or a Catholic school or a Protestant school or a, a Montessori school, et cetera, et cetera, you don't get that mixing anymore and that the racism that starts off at school doesn't get broken down by school. So it's partially that racism thing. But as you say, very often it's the, the migrants themselves who are complaining about the next wave of migrants, and that's because they see them as taking the jobs away that they came to take over uh, and, yeah. and and uh, often it is it's the unskilled the low skilled workers in deprived parts of the countries that move there because the housing is cheaper very often uh, and they're worried that someone's going to come and, and take their job and push wages down even further uh, and as you say in, in good times that's not a problem because there's more than enough jobs it's uh, it's my it's the problem is is the migration and the wave waves of the economy 
isn't it? And, and the that- factions the factors behind it as well. I mean, if you think about migration back in you know, the, I was born in Australia in 1953, uh, so I was at school by 50, 57, 58. And um, so across that period of time, the main wave of migration that was coming out were people who were refugees from what was left of Europe after the Second World War. Mm. Of course, that mainly occurred 45 to 60. Um, but that, that was the, the pressure. So you had countries like Australia that were, uh, you know, much, much lower population than now, like a population of about 8 million rather than 25 million, wanting to populate, wanting a workforce and bringing them over for those reasons. And there was a positive attitude all, in all the same sense to the extra people turning up because you, you, you with the booming economies we had between 45 and, and 73, uh, then there was always that, that boom pressure that meant you wanted new workers coming in and the old workers weren't uh, worried about them losing their jobs because the unemployment was so low. People might not believe well, this, but back, back in 1960, in 1973, the unemployment rate in Australia was 1.5%. Wow. Yeah, so we say we think it's low and we're at the point of uh, uh, full employment now and uh, nowhere near that. But look, the, the arguments... Five and six, yeah. yeah, exactly. Where, so where do we draw the line then on migration? Because the arguments for migration... Uh, they're compelling, but they're also short-term, aren't they? So they boost the working age population. But, I mean, that would mean if you're going to keep on boosting the working age population, you've got to, because as migrants get older, you need to take more uh, more younger migrants to replace them. So that's a vicious cycle. They contribute more in taxes than they receive in benefits is often, a, you know, in other words, they're, they're net contributors to the economy. But you'd hope everyone is, non-migrants as well. We'd hope we'd all be contributing, uh, you know, as much as we're receiving anyway. Anyway, certainly. So uh, while we're of working out. Hey, 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 watch out. You're well, getting into, into well, you falling into the line no, of no, funds. No, no, no. Okay. No, it's what I was going to say is while we're, <laughs> while we're of working age, you you know, we need to counter the people who can't work and the people who are, are, are old. But, uh, I'll give you that one. Yeah. Okay. And yeah. then, and then uh, better, you know, and then they're better educated than the population as a whole. But I mean, that's because often they're younger than the population as a whole and younger people tend to be better educated. So that all sounds great. Um, but but if you follow all of that logic, then you'd say, well, yes, we need to keep on having more and more migrants. Where do you draw the line? The issue, but, but then you start writing little issues of population growth, the, the population pressure on the planet, um, and what's actually driving migration these days. And a large part of this now is is uh, getting caught up in the in the in the climate uh, catastrophe we're approaching because. A lot of the migrants have been driven out by two factors. One is climate breakdown in places like Syria, yeah. which led to a lot of the immigration from, from Syria and from and Africa as well. Uh, and the second is the West's stupid interventions in the Middle East, which have actually caused so many people to want to leave because they're being shot at by both sides. Uh, and that, so it, it's been bad politics at one extreme, but also the, the impact on the climate. That's really what's driving the migration from those countries now. Uh, so it's no longer a case of them being driven away or you know, leaving a devastated area after a war. Uh, they're being driven away by wars that often the West has created and by climate damage that we've also done far more to create than, than those countries have done. And uh, and then what you get is people turning up in um, economies which are now stagnant because of the last 30 or 40 years of financialization have destroyed um, the productivity of the economy. And so that angst is extreme. Um, and and I, I I don't like the fact that that's why people are leaving. I can understand people leaving the second leaving uh, 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 Europe to get away from the the impact of the Second World War. And I know some people who do that for emotional rather than financial reasons. Mm. Uh, but when you when it's being driven around by climate breakdown or by the 
the West's stupid interventions in the Middle East, um, then I'd rather stop the climate breakdown and the stupid interventions than, than say, let's solve it by letting migration take well, place. Well, I mean, Syria obviously is a significant part of the picture currently. So two th- these, this is World Bank data, uh, 2017, so last year, uh, 1.2 million people from Syria. That's in one year from one country. Net, wow. mi- net, net migration. Shocking, mm-hmm. isn't it? Because it's not that big a country, really. But also, um, India and Bangladesh, net migration, loss of 5 million people. China lost 1.6 million. So it's not just the Middle East. Uh, a million people from Pakistan. Uh, obviously, the biggest move are, is to OECD countries. They've got a net gain of 13.2 million people last year. The European Union, it was 4.3 million, 4.5 million net gain for the United States. So you can see why Donald Trump is uh, getting on his high horse. And these are, mm. of course, official stats. So there'll be a lot of people who are not counted, which could make places like Syria far worse, of course. That's extreme. I mean, then you look at it, what's actually what's causing migration now is not um, the aftermath of a crisis and the people, places you're migrating to are booming economies because, um, you know, back to my favourite topic, the, the, the debt that caused the Great Depression was wiped out by the wars pretty much. So you had booming economies and hmm. plenty of credit demand and money turning over easily. You've now got them being driven away by uh, climate change and by this huge disparity of incomes between the West and the Third World, even after the rise of China. And it's a, and, and the reason that people are, the economy is a stagnant where they're going to uh, is because of bad economic management that let the financial sector get out of control. So it's 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 just a, the angst is on both sides, and and that's where you, I see the, the level of passion. And rise of xenophobia in Europe these days. Uh, it's it's quite it's it's a real worry. And um, and, and how do you, how do you, how do you solve it? Because it's not being yeah. so, at the one end. It's not being solved with local planning. So uh, so the countries that they're going to. Uh, the question is, you know, how how many do you let in, and how do you define who comes in? But even after you've let them in, planning is normally awful. Uh, so they do go to areas where they. Um, they establish ghettos. There's not enough local services. They're not able to speak English. There's, you know, obviously not enough services available to help them do that. We hear stories about them living in tent or a room. They run in a, a cash in hand economy sometimes, but they're again so do local people in those areas. Uh, and you know, it's a failure of the system that some migrants, first of all, can take advantage of the system, but just as local people do, but also that the systems are not there to look after them and help them integrate and become part of society as well, because we yeah, have a degradation process. It's just and, a bad planning yeah. issue. Well, it, it, it's, it's, it's also, if we actually confront what we're doing to the planet, uh, then we know that we've got to seriously reduce the human pressure on the planet, and that comes down to population as well as energy use and so on. And we've never addressed that either. So uh, it's it's just a series of you know, a cascade of mismanagements of, uh, of that are leading to people having to leave on a grand scale. And I think we've only seen the very beginning of it. If we start serious, seeing serious climate breakdown, um, many people are forced to move. Wars start occurring because of climate breakdown, and that's certainly one of the arguments behind where the Syria conflict began and some of the conflicts in Africa as well. And then people moving to get away from that, the waves of migration are going to overwhelm any of the systems the West has in position. 
So how do we solve that? I mean, in, like in the short term and the long term, obviously it's a bigger picture of, you know, it's easy to say we just need to stop climate change. But even now with those with those migration levels that we've seen, like, you know, one million people a year, one million people a year from Syria, mm. which is yeah, aston- it's astonishing. Much. It's too much. It, it, it is. And that's that's leading to breakdown of both. And it's breakdown in the in the in the, in the source country and and breakdown of the destination country as well. And I can understand um, to some extent the the alt rights argument. That, you know, this is breaking down our cultures as well. It doesn't have to, but it's very hard to maintain a culture um, when you have such a wave of people coming in who aren't aren't part of that culture. And if you if you don't have the boom going on, which Australia had at that stage, the extent to which uh, uh, migrants to Australia were assimilated. Uh, into into the the good sides of Australian culture, and brought their their good sides as well in the forties and fifties and sixties were extraordinary. And I would hate to imagine Australia without the migration that it, that it received in those days. It'd be a totally boring Anglo-Saxon mm. country where the most interesting thing you get it was a meat pie, um, and uh, and you're going to see you know the sound of music as your best musical. Um, it, it's it dramatically improved the country to have that level of migration, but. That was back when population levels were about half what they are now on the planet, when the when, the, when we hadn't broken the ecological constraints of the planet completely as we did pretty much in, starting from 1975 on. So you know, this, mm. this, is, this is with a huge symptom, I think, of, of, of we're losing control of the biosphere. And the answers always seem to be very short term, don't they? So Theresa May, because the the UK now, Theresa May, who is of course the the architect of the hostile environment policy, uh, mm. which anybody who's handled uh, you know the immigration process in the UK will know, it doesn't just affect people from the uh, from the West Indies, but it's a it's it's been a shocking approach to uh, to migration in the UK. It's very difficult to move here if you're outside the EU. Uh, there's lots of... Uh, I to be a tourist there as well, <laughs> as I found out the hard way, trying to get my partner to come and join me to see Wimbledon. Yeah, well, there we are. No, we just don't want you. Yeah, it's hostile, hostile environment. What a, what a word to say to entice people. But her, her yeah, answer is, because Britain's got to find a solution, of course, after post, uh, post-Brexit, about how they handle migration, you know, because there's going to be no freedom of movement from Europe. So how do you determine who's allowed to come and work in this country? And Theresa May has suggested, well, only migrants who have jobs of £30,000 or more per year, which is actually above the average wage. So that excludes mm-hmm. uh, that excludes people, you know, hospital workers that there's a shortage of. It excludes um uh, qualified young people, because they, of course, when they leave university, their the average starting salary is well below the uh, the average wage. So, uh, not a lot of thought going gone into that. But <laughs> clearly, how do you set the bar? Do you just mm. go for the you know? Do you say, well, okay, we're, we're only going to take the best, uh, but yeah. you also need unskilled labour. Where do they come from? How do you set criteria to allow people into your country? Yeah, well, I mean, you have to look at the extent to which your country can cope with the. Uh, the infrastructure demands that new people make on it because this is one issue which a lot of my colleagues in Australia have focused on. They talk about capital widening versus capital deepening. And if you have a a, a large migration coming in, something of the order of 1% of your population per year, then if you're going to actually properly support them, you've got to build roads, you've got to build schools, you've got to build hospitals and so on, which is effectively replicating what you've currently got for the increase in population. If you have, a, but if you want to grow in the, in the genuine sense of having a higher standard of living per person, then you want to be capital deepening. You want to be adding better schools, better roads, better technology, um, better, better innovation, and 
and, and your infrastructure direction is quite different. There is, there's a tipping point where your infrastructure is all into expanding your capacity uh, at the current level of technology versus improving your technology and getting a higher per capita income. And I think certainly when you look at a, 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 great, a level of immigration exceeding 1% of your existing population, then I think you're in trouble on that front. And the country has a legitimate right to say, no, we want it to be lower than that. But then, of course, the situation of where the people are turning up is not because they're um, migrants in the in the you know, sense of looking for a job in a different country. It's because they're refugees from the breakdown of their own societies where we've contributed to that breakdown. And then you get caught with, you know, you, 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 but it's you not should ju- be making decisions on humanitarian grounds. Yeah. Well, I mean, which we won't do these days. No, we won't. And, but it's not just that, is it? Because, I mean, the, you know, the, the, the nice argument, the, you know, the, the ideal solution we'd all like to see is that every country in the world's living standard improved to such an extent that everyone would say, well, we're ha- quite happy here. Thanks very mm. much. We don't see the need to move. And so you look at the emerging middle class in India and China and think, well, okay, they, they wouldn't be migrating a lot, but it seems the wealthier their countries become. I guess it's because people's aspirations rise. As I said, you know, one 1.6 million people a year from China between India and Bangladesh, 5 million. I think it's about 3 million from India. So uh, there's a country that's in, in improving its uh, its position, but also increasing its net migration. Um, mm. And I guess that's, yeah, aspirational. Um, these people want to go and live in other parts of the world. Yeah, but I think um, in that's like a China and India's probably got some climate, serious climate problems coming its way. China's addressing its serious climate problems, I think, better than virtually any other country on the planet. So you won't necessarily see climate refugees coming from them, but you are going to be seeing it from Africa mm. uh, and from and from the Middle East. And uh, in, in that scale, you simply can't say, now you've got to go back there and, 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 and die in the 40-degree temperatures rather than coming to us. Um, it's it's testing what is the definition of our humanity, and that's that's one of the great problems that we're facing here. That um, um, the economic and ecological problems we're in are undermining our own humanity. All right, final word on Brexit, seeming as that is very much the flavour of mm. the uh, flavour of the news environment in the UK at the moment. Mm. So the whole idea of the free movement rule for the EU was. Uh, you know, it was all about addressing labour imbalances, wasn't it? So if a coal mine closes in Yorkshire and there's work in Spain, why not go there? Particularly if it's more affordable for you to move to a region in Europe than it would be to, for example, try and find accommodation and pay for it in the south of England, which for someone from mm. a mining community in Yorkshire would just be ridiculous. That was the whole principle behind free movement within the EU. What's wrong with that? Mm. We're, t- we're talking about a constrained section of the world. Well, free, free movement is actually undermining population uh, centres because people are doing the internal migration from areas where the economy is contracting to where it's expanding. And that's meaning that where, the, where it's contracting, it contracts faster. Mm. I, I gave a few talks in, Cro- in Croatia last so year. So like the net migration from Greece would be a great example of that. Yeah, and, and particularly Croatia, though, because mm. that's, that's, Croatia is nowhere near as damaged as Greece has been. Of course, the European Union hasn't quite got its mitts on it yet. Um, but uh, I went from Zagreb down to a place called uh, Split, um, and on the drive through, the, my my my, my uh, uh, hosts were casually saying, "Oh, this city, this this town has got no more people living in it now." And you're just going through quite a lovely looking little village and it literally, there's nobody living there. It's empty. And the reason is because they've all gone for jobs that they can now get by going to you know, Berlin and Frankfurt and whatever else. And 
and what you're getting is depopulation. And this this is there's a, one of the few pieces of economic theory that I have a lot of time for is by a guy called Hotelling. And he argued that if you imagine, um, imagine a beach and you had a uniform distribution of people on the beach going swimming and you had an ice cream stall. No, we've covered Where's this the one. Yeah, the yeah. ice cream stall. It's yep. right in the middle, middle of the beach. Yeah. Okay. If you then have two ice cream stalls, what's the best location for the swimmers on the beach? It's to have one at the one-third mark and one at the two-third mark. However, if the one at the one-third mark moves, moves next to the one at the two-thirds mark, he gets two-thirds of the market in terms of people you know, taking the shortest route to get to the ice cream. So what actually happens is they all cluster at the 50% mark. Mm. And, and that therefore means you simply can't rely upon market mechanisms to choose the best outcome. You've got to say, no, you're going to be at the one-third mark and you're going to be at the two-third mark. And this, again, is a similar sort of thing for migration. You can't just rely upon the market to determine it. Now, when you have something like open access, open movement, as you have in the European Union, you're letting the market determine it. What happens? The areas which are poor get depopulated. And that's the opposite of what the European Union was supposed but to achieve. Yeah, this is a very fundamental economic principle, though, isn't it? The whole, you know, this whole accumulation of capital, it's yeah. always going to gather in the one place. Yeah, but that's why, in that sense, I think the whole idea of free movement was a mistake. Mm. Like a lot of a lot of the European Union is based on a very simplistic notion of the economy, leaving out the spatial issues. And when you take the spatial issues into account, what is a good idea when there's no such thing as space is a stupid idea when we live on a planet. And 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 that's so for the free movement thing is actually undermines the viability of the economy when the whole idea of the theories is going to improve the viability of the economy. So in that sense, free movement is a farce. So the extreme then, forget about the EU, look at it from the planet. The the extreme is to say, well, we'll have no migration. Uh, we will just have to try and tackle why does people want to move in the first place. Which yeah, is trying to that, th- that is the, that is that is the one the other extreme of the cure. I'd rather have a bit of a balance in that front than have a little bit of movement around, of course. Yeah, well, but uh, someone, the someone whole who's, idea that free moved. movement is, is, is <laughs> a superior ideological position, a sort of a left position, is better. I think that's wrong. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I don't know what the happy medium is, uh, but I fear that we're not going to reach it, and we will just have more unrest as we're seeing around the world. And uh, that, unfortunately, I think is the case. Mm. All right. Okay. Okay. Good to talk, Steve. Catch you again very soon. Okay, mate. Bye. Yeah, there we are. That's a, a, a very uh, uplifting talk, isn't it, for Christmas week? Goodwill to all men, unless they're foreign. Uh, look, next time, productivity. Uh, can we increase productivity simply by growing the economy? In short, do we work harder when we are busier? In which case, pump priming the economy should improve productivity. A double whammy. We'll look at that theory next time on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. I'll be back then, too. See you soon. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy the Y-Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search the Y-Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.